Welcome to Tech Talk. Bye. CDT. Welcome to CDT's Tech Talk, where we dish on tech and internet policy while also explaining what these policies mean to our daily lives. I'm Jamal Magby, and it's time to talk tech. In February, CDT released a report identifying research gaps in our understanding of the link between race and gender in disinformation campaigns. The report, Facts and Their Discontent, a Research Agenda for Disinformation, Race, and Gender, identifies key research questions about how race and gender are used in disinformation efforts. The report also makes recommendations for how to tackle related systematic and technical problems that researchers and others face in addressing these topics. Here to discuss some of the impacts of mis- and disinformation on communities of color and across gender identity and discuss their research findings are Maria Rodriguez, Assistant Professor at SUNY Buffalo and CDT Fellow, and Devin Hankerson Madrigal, Research Manager for CDT. Maria and Devin, thank you so much for being here today. Thank, thank you for, you having, for us. having us. Of course. So let's jump right into it. For our listeners who may be unfamiliar, can you explain exactly what mis- and disinformation is, Maria? Sure. Um, so in as plain words as I can sort of put together, this <laughs> disinformation can be understood as sort of targeted false information. So it's deliberately developed and you know, deployed to confuse folks, to misdirect folks, and typically to divide folks. Um, so an example would be like, you know, somebody making you believe that your doctor's appointment is at 10 a.m. when it's really at 3. Um, and then misinformation is sort of a little bit more fuzzy, but we can think about it as information that contradicts the best expert advice or evidence that's available at a, a specific moment in time. And to me, it's a little bit more dangerous and much more widespread because it's about topics that are sort of more dynamic. So when thinking about mis- and disinformation, I'm, I'm curious how different demographics are targeted by these, you know, and what are the harms? How, how can this be harmful when talking about different demographics being targeted by, by mis- and disinformation? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, and it's kind of a complex answer, but the one thing I'll say um, is that there's actually a really long history of actors, both internal to the United States and external to the United States, targeting marginalized communities. And when I say marginalized communities, I mean anyone who isn't a white male who's middle class and Christian uh, and able-bodied. And able-bodied, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but uh, I just wanted to add to that and just um, to what Maria was saying about the disproportionate targeting of people uh, of color online and to your question about the harms. I think just from uh, a broader perspective, we can see that the main harm is that disinformation and misinformation sort of undermine these larger goals of societal inclusive of societal inclusion and de- and inclusive democracy um, because they mainly focus on either intimidation or voter suppression, um, confusion and chaos, and that targeted focus on people of color or marginalized people, I think further exacerbates what we've seen as sort of a pretty uh, 
specific history in the United States of institutional practices and legislation that have limited the opportunities for democratic for the democratic participation of people of color. So it basically um, gloms on to that and sort of makes it even even worse. Uh, and we know that like even where disinformation operations are not exclusively targeting people of color, the harms in these communities specifically are more aggravated because of these embedded political disadvantages that we've seen that are mainly wrought by social and political practice. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think the, you know, we we have concrete evidence of, for example, Russian targeting of uh, Black Americans very specifically dating back to, you know, the 1930s. And, um, and even... Uh, more recently, with the past two presidential election cycles, we can we have clear, concrete evidence that the cleavages of society, right, the the sort of tension points, um, the biggest one, arguably, um, is uh, is you know racial and ethnic relationships within the United States, and and it is a very ripe um, place for. Uh, to for internal and external actors to exacerbate because um, it is so embedded within our democratic institutions, within our democracy itself. The way we've defined democracy um, has been exclusionary as a matter of course. And so um, it is a it is an incredibly easy thing to do to engage in. Definitely low hanging um, fruit. I'll agree with you there. So one term I've been hearing is a mis- and disinformation campaign. Can Maria, can you explain what, what this is and, and, and what it hopes to accomplish? Absolutely. So um, whether we're talking about um, information that is specifically produced and deployed uh, to confuse, as in the case of disinformation, or whether we're talking about information that's sort of uh, nebulous, that's kind of uh, comprised of both truthful and untruthful parts, as in the case of misinformation, the the aim is always to confuse and, to, and divide. Um, the aim is always to incite a belief that there is an enemy uh, who you cannot see, and that enemy wants to harm you and people who look like you, and so it's best for you to arm yourself um, or in some way protect yourself against uh, these folks. Um, so the important thing about this is that we, we understand mis- and disinformation as happening across populations. So even mainstream populations, arguably also uh, large targets. Um, and so what happens in a campaign is that uh, whoever the actor is will take, in a disinformation campaign, they will produce false information um, for example, like there's a cabal of politicians that are interested in, um, you know, child exploitation, which is a campaign that we all maybe have recently heard about, um, and then spread it through specific channels um, using uh, visuals, audio, um, and rhetoric that is familiar to the networks that they're trying to infiltrate. Um, in the case of misinformation, the difference is that a misinformation campaign will contain kernels of truth. For example, um, strategies to prevent COVID-19 um, are places where there's a lot of misinformation because it'll include uh, accurate things like wash your hands, wear a mask, with um, 
but don't get any vaccinations because they're clearly implanted with chips that are meant to turn you into a robot soon. That's one right there. I, I, I did actually see that one making the rounds and I, I, uh, I, I almost couldn't, I almost couldn't believe it, but then I had to believe it because obviously people are regurgitating those ideas, particularly people, you know, in people, in communities of color who sort of have reason to uh, suspect that there is some nefarious intent. And when I say reason to suspect, I don't mean uh, in the in the sort of concrete sense, but sort of in a historical sense, there is this basis for distrust and mistrust that uh, the misinformation is sort of uh, is built upon. And so it's not a stretch for people who um, who you know remember Tuskegee or, for example, the Miss- Mississippi appendectomies, where um, women were forcibly sterilized um, by uh, medical students, particularly women of color. So there isn't really a long line to draw between this sort of abuse of these historical abuses of power and and people, particularly people of color, really thinking that those kinds of things could be possible. Um, And so I think we want to make sure that we're being sensitive to that at the same time that we call out that the misinformation is essentially taking advantage of these sort of abuses of power and misleading people who are who who have reason to be suspicious and we know that like in the case of uh uh you know in latin american communities we know that some of the misinformation also played on you know, similarly played on fears around um, people's history history with communism in Venezuela or or played on these ideas of um, the presidential candidates being somehow socialists. Really, the idea is to uh, play on a legitimate fear, a genuine fear, and then mix it with real information. And then that sort of is the vehicle through which this misinformation gets spread and communities are uh, sort of primed to believe it again because of their history. With misinformation having some kernels of truth, does that make it any more dangerous than disinformation or are they uh, about on the same lines? Yeah, I I would say it's incredibly it's exponentially more dangerous um, because uh, there is uh, there's a part of it that's believable. In fact, it's um, part of uh, Operation Infection, which was a 1980s um, Russian disinformation campaign. Um, it's part of their it, it was part of the Russian campaign in uh, the 2016 presidential election, certainly again in the 2020 election. Um, I think it's called countermeasures was the name of the campaign. Um, but um, but it, it is that much more believable because there is a portion of it that is true and that we can verify. And particularly in the, in the case of marginalized populations, um, you know, populations that are systematically oppressed, repressed, um, uh, populations that experience violence that itself is not, um, is not, uh, under um, not just understood, but also um, universally agreed to as um, the violence that they experience is not us- universally agreed to as a negative thing. 
um, uh, there is there is such a high capacity for people to weaponize that, um, both as uh, sort of receivers of that misinformation and uh, folks who are developing it. Um, um, and we see that, again, across the political spectrum. We see that on the far right all the way through to um, the, you know, sort of the left um, is people being weaponized as a result of believing misinformation campaigns because they are believable. Wow. That's a little scary, <laughs> I must say. Um, yeah, it's rough. Like <laughs> so what are some of the tactics producers of disinformation use to create this content? And, and how successful are these campaigns? Yeah, so um, in, in uh, one study I did recently, we, we saw, uh, for example, uh, the use of breaking news. Um, particularly given the 24-hour news cycle, we have um, way more information about the things that are wrong in the world than we ever wanted. <laughs> and so, um, you know, using uh, breaking news headlines, using the production um, the production value that we see on 24-hour news networks, uh, for example, on the far right, we see that, and even the sort of moderate right, we see that a lot of... Um, uh, citizens get their news from YouTube, mm-hmm. not because they're looking at channels like CNN or MSNBC or Fox or whatever, but because they're looking at these third-party uh, media companies who've developed um, pretty sophisticated, you know, news sets, um, graphics, you know, the whole kind of kit and caboodle, and are able to deliver news in on such a par with more traditional media outlets, and are but are don't adhere to any of the same conventions, don't uh, you know adhere to any of the same rules around journalistic integrity and so on. Um, and so uh, you know, so we see a lot of that happening uh, in real time, um, and we also see uh, other mediums besides social media. You know, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about mis- and disinformation on social media, but actually it pervades radio. Um, it pervades TV in what we've seen in sort of the conglomeration of local news um, television stations being purchased. You know, there are basically monopolies now, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, not a lot of people want to talk about. So it's not <laughs> just a, it's not a technology <laughs> problem by itself. <laughs> it's actually much more pervasive across all media. And books, books, I mean, like self-publishing is now a thing. And the amount of books that I've seen on like so-called conspiracy theories being sold on Amazon um, and touted as truth is, you know, is is really, it makes me believe that I could write a book if I really put my <laughs> mind to it. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Well, actually, actually piggybacking on that, you just co-authored a paper entitled This Information Creep, Eidos, and the Strategic Weaponization of Breaking News. Can you give our listeners a little insight into what you explored in this paper? Absolutely. So um, this was a paper that we wrote kind of in real time as the 2020 presidential election was going on. And uh, what we looked at was a a networked group called ADOS. They're known as the American Descendants of Slavery. They kind of uh, go for different monikers now, um, like the American Descendants of Shadow Slavery. But nonetheless, it's a group whose main uh, aim is purportedly the um, acquisition of reparations that are owed to African-Americans. And we looked at them because mm-hmm. some of their rhetoric uh, or some of the rhetoric of their leadership, I should say, we noticed was decidedly anti-immigrant. 
and their language parroted a lot of what we saw on the far right, actually on different platforms. And so we looked at their problem framing and rhetoric in a specific mm-hmm. U.S. city and found during the, the study period that they used um, sort of black identity and breaking news to explicitly and implicitly support anti-black groups and causes and it ends very, very specifically encourage black voters to not participate in the 2020 presidential election. And uh, we're active in sort of peddling some of that COVID-19 misinformation that I was alluding to before. Um, and uh, as a result of that sort of investigation, we in tandem, we sort of built a intervention um, to, to counter some of these narratives and coupled with some of the other efforts that were going on across the country, we found it to be largely successful. I just wanted to add on, well, first of all, uh, we actually uh, read that paper, it was really well done. And um, we, I believe, cited to it in the paper that uh, we published a couple months ago at CDT called uh, Facts and Their Discontents, a Research Agenda for Disinformation, Race and Gender. And in that piece, we also talked about some of the tactics highlighted highlighted by Maria. And um, I believe your co-author also was Mutale Nkande, um, yes, who um, has been a part of uh, a a couple of convenings that we've done at CDT on disinformation, race, and gender. And um, she has talked about some of these tactics. And in your paper, you talk about some of these tactics. And I think what's important to point out is that, you know, these campaigns, disinformation campaigns are, um, as we've said, sort of exploiting these existing narratives of discrimination. Um, And the reason they're doing it, the tactic, is to command attention and engagement. And our paper really was a research agenda. Um, And we wanted to really focus on the fact that disinformation research in general sort of overlooks the different tactics and patterns that exist when targeting is based on race and gender or both. And it kind of fails to understand the potential impacts fully by not examining how a disinformation campaign may use narratives of race, gender, or intersectional forms of discrimination to support its false claims. Maria sort of talked about the weaponization of narratives of racism and and really gender bias. And I think that's sort of a tactic, sort of we're talking about it uh, as it relates to people of color, but I think the narrative itself is being weaponized. The racist narrative itself is being weaponized to kind of further the aims of the disinformation campaign. Oh, well, no, I was just going to add the, the, the other thing that comes out of, uh, to me from, from this work is that um, the assumption um, at least as I, as I understand it, not just in the academy, but in sort of the political world at large, is that political thinking in marginalized communities in general and black communities specifically is monolithic, right? The idea is that like all black people politically agree with each other, that, um, you know, you could, uh, all of them are democratic party members um, and that all of them um you know, have are basically um, 
invested in group think. And I think what, what this, the other thing that this paper is maybe a little bit more subtle, this, this information paper um, kind of points to, and some of the work that we're doing now um, that uh, builds off of this work will show is that th- that is, that couldn't be further from the truth, right? That um, being black does not mean that you have, um, you have strong allegiances to any party. Um, in fact, why would you when that party, those parties haven't had strong allegiances to you? It's actually counter, um, it's counter survival um, to, to throw all your eggs in any one of those baskets. Um, but, but, but that affects disinformation and misinformation very specifically because we actually don't have um, a concrete understanding of political life in marginalized communities because we've assumed so much for so long. And so when we want to th- think about the tactics that are being deployed and we want to build interventions to counter those tactics, we actually can't do that because we haven't spent any time actually understanding um, the, the lived experience of communities of color as it relates to democracy in as far as the, the development of, the, of that public sphere. And I think that um, not only is that a gap in research, but is, it is the reason that misinformation is so dangerous, because we don't have any way of scaling any intervention in, in any way, shape or form, and certainly not in real time. I would, I would definitely, uh, a plus one to everything that Maria just said, and then just in adding to the last point that you were making about uh, investment by um, political institutions in um, communities of color, I think we've sort of seen that play out in in the tactics of disinformation campaigns directly. Specifically, I'm thinking of the work of one of our CDT fellows, Safe Savage, who sort of pointed out that that disinvestment has allowed for um, disinformation operatives to take advantage of what you know has been sort of discussed sort of broadly and widely as data voids, which is that there's an absence of information, political information, neutral political information, particularly in Spanish language, and I'm sure in other languages as well. I'm sure it's not um, unique to the Spanish language online community, and that leaves a gap, an opening, if you will, for disinformation operatives to seed that 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 space with false information because there's no and there's nothing countering it because there isn't uh, an investment in um, providing accurate neutral political information on candidates in that language or targeted towards those communities uh, specifically and uh, just to uh, emphasize what um, Maria was talking about about this uh, assumption that Black communities are monolithic uh, from a from a political standpoint. That could not be, um, as she said, uh, further from the truth. Um, and I think that you know one of the tactics, another one of the tactics in answer to your question, um, particularly um, related to we saw it more in the uh, twenty sixteen election um, and is this use of, and I believe you guys talk about it in your paper as well, sort of digital blackface, digital brownface. Uh, these are the these are the tactics that are being deployed by disinformation operatives. And it's not just, uh, it had, it, it basically is a tactic that migrated from that campaign 
to the the more the current campaign, the the 2020 campaign, not current, sorry, the one that just passed. So it's where uh, people represent themselves as African American activists or Latin people part of the Latinx community, um, and then use that 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 false avatar to um, spread false information and to basically trick or deceive whatever audience they're speaking with, that they are a member of that community. And we've seen at least some um, evidence that in the 2020 election, there was uh, an application of that same tactic, as I mentioned, um, in Latinx online communities. Um, We haven't talked a lot yet about some of the tactics around uh, gender disinformation, um, but I wanted to sort of talk about that a little bit because we know that there is concerted effort to intimidate women online, particularly um, women who are in politics, uh, again, with the uh, goal of uh, intimidating them out of running or um, harassing them to the point that they decide to exit the field um, and therefore um, diminish the number of female political uh, leaders and candidates. Um, and the, the tactic is to promote this narrative that women are not good political leaders. Um, and the aim is to undermine the, the leaders themselves, the ones that are sitting, the ones that are potentially running, um, by spreading false information about their qualifications, their experience, their intelligence. And they uh, often use sexualized imagery as part of the tactic to sort of spread and amplify uh, that false information, which, as you can probably tell, has direct um, impacts on our the 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 face of political representation. Um, and I'll just stop there. Yeah, I'll just add that I um, I've been working with an organization to think about uh, where we sort of did a, a kind of um, case study of some black. Uh, black female identified politicians and looked at um, kind of the, the the online abuse that they endured and the the report um, is almost done it's not a it's not an academic publication but um, but it's obviously based on academic research and part of what we found was that the 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 abuse is is so pervasive um, and so endemic that it 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 is um, the, the best word that I came up with it was just, uh, you know, these, these women are, are dealing with so much unpaid emotional labor. Um, you know, it makes me think about every time I, uh, that was a really hard report for me personally as a human to write. I identify as Afro-Latina. Uh, I'm, I, I identify as a female. Uh, I'm cisgendered. Um, and it was hard. It was hard for me personally to write because the kind of abuse that they sustained for make you know for voting one way um or even for existing in the space that they existed in was so um violent so visceral and um and none of these women gave up obviously but the but i think that that is the sort of next wave and and they were targets of you know deep fakes um, they were targets of, um, of you know, um, sort of coordinated troll attacks. 
um, your point, Devin, on blackface, digital blackface is uh, is really well taken. Um, Dean Freelon um, out of UNC Chapel Hill has really great work on this. I cite it all the time. Um, he's been working at this intersection for uh, for a little bit, and, um, and his work is really fantastic and rigorous. Um, but yeah, I would say that the the sort of the intersectional space uh, where race and ethnicity meets gender and uh, sexuality um, is maybe the next kind of frontier in terms of dis and misinformation and how we understand it. I would agree with that. And actually, we cite to Dean as well. He attended our um, September convening. I, I believe, and so we we definitely cited to his work. Um, so. Thank you for for mentioning that. I only want to mention one more tactic, Jamal, and I promise I'll uh, give it back to you to actually run the interview um, or the podcast. But um, there's one more that I wanted to uh, flag just because, as you mentioned, like what the next frontier uh, is in this space from a sort of research standpoint and from an academic research standpoint and also just from like these are the things that we're seeing more often it's how and we talked about how um disinformation campaigns are sort of intertwined with organic online activity and also that peppered in with some misinformation some some kernel of truth which has the impact of making the messaging more accessible. And I think what's important about that tactic is that it, what it allows for, and that is it allows for people who may just be, you know, scrolling on Twitter or scrolling on Instagram or wherever they happen to be scrolling to unwittingly spread and amplify these messages and potentially strengthen their impact. And that's important because I think particularly in the domestic sphere politically, we sort of see the weaponization of these like micro bloggers or these um, um, bloggers who or people who are micro influencers who are domestic citizens, who are citizens who, you know, their page becomes uh, a vector for dis and misinformation, and they may or may not realize that they are helping to amplify messaging that that potentially has uh, a suppressive impact on engagement, even in a community they themselves may be part of. And I think that um, your your work, uh, Maria, sort of points to some of these effects. And as you've said, also it kind of it spans the gamut. It's not just in communities of color. We have noted the work of, um, I think is University of Texas at Austin. I think that's where they are. Um, but I'm blanking on the name right now where they sort of looked at mommy and travel bloggers, sort of their online presences being sort of becoming these vectors of mis and disinformation for communities that they happen to be part of or embedded in. So it's not just, you know, communities of color to your earlier point about um, how broad and wide the impacts are. So with that being said, where are some of the gaps in the current research around mis and disinformation as it relates to the racial and gender dimensions of disinformation narratives? Where should researchers focus their time? Uh, I'll I'll go ahead and start this time. I I just wanted to to highlight that like obviously um, 
the conversations around misinformation and disinformation are everywhere now. There was a hearing back on March 25th, actually, about misinformation and disinformation online, and a one previous to that about mis- and disinformation on traditional um, media platforms. Um, so we've seen it dominating the public policy discussions everywhere for the past couple of years. And so the research about these topics has developed fairly rapidly over the course of that time. However, as we've discussed, that research sort of lacks a focus on the impact of disinformation and misinformation on people of color, women, LGBTQIA plus communities, and other voices that are typically less prominent in mainstream political discourse in the U.S. And on this question of where researchers should focus their time, there are a couple of things that we've highlighted uh, in our work that uh, we we point to. Uh, One is understanding the information verification needs of communities. And by that, I mean, we need to better understand the needs of communities where information Verification, meaning uh, verifying that something is accurate, is more difficult, uh, or where there are data voids. For example, as we discussed earlier, um, prevalent in non-English speaking communities. Um, And this is a nod to the work of uh, Professor Safe Savage at West Virginia uh, University. Um, Two, we need to better understand how disinformation deploys racism and misogyny, um, how it leverages these false narratives based on uh, racism and misogyny um, really would help us improve our efforts to counter disinformation. Um, Maria mentioned the intersectional lens um, that would help us really uh, go beyond just fact checking alone when it comes to uh, uh, solution development, strategies to combat disinformation. Three, we need to understand more about how we need to really focus on defining and measuring disinformation. Um, and as, I've, as we sort of said before, the way we get to a, a better definition and measurement of disinformation is to really focus on uh, the intersectional ways that disinformation uh uses information to target race, racial and gender minorities online, uh, that will really help us get at these questions and and the problem of definition um, really by allowing us to focus on the impacts and harm of disinformation as we look at those communities in particular. Uh, For, I think, there really is a lack of research on the broad impacts of disinformation. We really aren't able to pinpoint or identify specific impacts specifically as it relates to electoral outcomes or on political opinions or on trust in political institutions, for example, nor are we really able to provide evidence on impacts in cases where disinformation is about or targets people by race and gender. Uh, We need to uh, really focus on measuring coordination and shared views between actors 
as well as being able to capture the fluidity between disinformation and misinformation. Um, Maria was sort of talking about that a little bit earlier. So the question here is how can research better capture and understand this uh, interaction, uh, particularly if these patterns kind of vary across and within groups based on race and gender and other factors. Uh, and also uh, on this point of measuring the coordination and shared views, the questions here are how can we better measure coordination, organic or otherwise, and then to determine who may be involved in a disinformation campaign. To what extent is that coordination maintained through shared views of patriarchy and or white supremacy? So those are the kind of areas we think the research really should be focused on. Yeah, I um, plus one to, to all of those things. And, and I would just add from my perspective as an academic, that um, I think one thing to underscore, uh, and I guess now I'm speaking specifically to the academic community, is uh, that the one of the principal gaps um, derives from the assumption I, I alluded to earlier around the monolithic nature of political discourse in marginalized communities. So I think one of the key issues is um, academics um, in general, and specifically social scientists, need to uh, be very critical of that very specific stance that bears out in the academic literature. For example, if you were to look for academic articles on Black conservatism, uh, you would be hard-pressed to find one. And I think um, the work that uh, we did uh, concerning ADOS uh, speaks to the fact that uh, conservatism is, is, um, is a very ripe field um, of exploitation within the Black community, as it is within other mainstream communities. Uh, as it is within mainstream communities, excuse me, because of the dearth of um, seriousness that we give to the, those particular political stances. What I mean by that is that um, part of the issue, um, one of the critiques from the far right that I happen to agree with is that there is um, this idea that anyone who's an academic is by, as a matter of course, completely liberal. And, and that assumption translates to the populations that we study. And so the very first thing that needs to happen in, in research is a, is a dismantling of that very specific assumption. The second thing I would say is that it is important to understand the justifiable skepticism in communities of color towards, uh, towards truth that derives from anti-Black institutions. Uh, and understanding that that anti-Black stance is understood by other communities that may or may not identify as Black, but do identify as other. And so in insofar as uh, the anti-Black stance of institutions go, communities, marginalized communities, therefore have justifiable reasons to be skeptical and reticent to accept advice from uh, established experts or uh, institutions and their experts. And therefore, uh, as Devin mentioned, the uh, how truth is understood in communities of, of color uh, generally, but marginalized communities sort of broadly is an area of research that must be um, must be explored moving further, um, and that and we need to find ways to incentivize academics to engage in that type of scholarship because, as a matter of course, it becomes ethnographic, right? And we know that ethnographic research is not particularly valued in the academy. The other thing I would say is that as a matter of logistical uh, research, 
we need to understand that mis- and disinformation is not limited to social media. And this is particularly important for non-English speaking communities, right? So radio, especially, and particularly when we're talking about elders in the community who are, um, who've been shown to be a particularly uh, susceptible population for mis- and disinformation, um, we need more research that actually understands how dis- and misinformation moves beyond platforms Uh, moves across uh, communication mediums. And uh, the last thing I would say is that there is always resistance, and that comes from my particular stance as a community organizer back in the day. And so uh, one of the key areas of, of research that we need to understand is sort of examining whether and how grassroots organizations are responding to dis and misinformation in their own communities, either through social media or other Um, mediums, give them credit for developing those interventions and then partnering with them to see if they can scale in certain ways. And that's some work that um, my lab, the Carrot Lab here at the University of Buffalo is actively engaging in um, actually over the summer. Well, I'll say we covered a ton of information today. And I just want to thank you both, uh, Maria and Devin, for Come for joining our show and sharing your expertise with our listeners. I, we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you all. Of course. Thank you so much. And to our listeners, if you want to learn more about CDT's research team and our fellows program, please visit us at cdt.org. And don't forget to check us out on Twitter, LinkedIn at Sendem Tech. Thank you for talking tech. <laughs>